Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Marlene Laruel, the editor of The Nazarbayev Generation, Youth in Kazakhstan, recently published by Lexington Books. Marlene Laruel, PhD, is a director and research professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. She's also the director of George Washington's uh, Central Asia program. She received her PhD in history from the National Institute of Oriental Languages and Cultures. Um, She explores contemporary political, social, and cultural changes in Russia and Central Asia through the prism of ideologies, identity, and nationalism. She recently authored two books, Russian Nationalism, Imaginaries, Doctrines, and Political Battlefields, as well as Understanding Russia, The Challenges of Transformation, which was co-authored with Jean Radvayni. And that was published by Roman and Littlefield in 2018. Marlene, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, the book we're talking about today, I'm very excited uh, to talk about the Nazarbayev generation. Um, And as far as I understand, the book is part of a broader series called Contemporary Central Asia, Societies, Politics, and Cultures. And the goal of this project is to uh, kind of provide insight into Central Asia to move beyond uh, the sort of media cliches in order to uh, kind of develop a a better understanding of contemporary Central Asia. So I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about how this book series came came to be and uh, where listeners can find more information about maybe other books uh, within that book series. Yes, yeah, so the book series was created inside the, uh, the Central Asia program at GW already five, six years ago, and we now have about uh, 15 or 16 volumes already published. And the goal was really, as you said, going beyond the usual cliché about Central Asia as part of the Silk Road, about violence and instability in Central Asia, Islamism, links to Afghanistan and so on. So the goal was really to kind of give the floor to more academic voices, looking at topics related to Central Asia that are not necessarily making the news or being on the radar of the policy community. So the collection has been hosting mostly a a monograph based on PhD research and several edited volumes that looks at both society's political and cultural changes in the region. Yeah, that's really great. And that sounds like a a really great project, um, especially, you know, much in line with what we're trying to do here on the the podcast channel. And I'm curious, like, could you define what is the Nazarbayev generation and how does this uh, kind of fit within the broader goal of of the the book series? Yeah, in fact, it was the first collective research done on the question of younger generation in Central Asia and also the first book that is based mostly on sociological survey. As you know, surveys are difficult to do in the region. And in fact, we know very little about Central Asian public opinion compared to what we know about Russian, Ukrainian, or, or I don't know, Georgian uh, uh, public opinion. So the goal was really to suddenly create this uh, amount of collective knowledge that will allow us to look at this new generation in Kazakhstan in particular. And before we get into uh, the, you know, the kind of individual components of of this edited volume, I was curious, you know, I think there's a a bit of an elephant in the room um, in the fact that you call the book Nazarbayev Generation. And I assume this, this project was, you know, came in, came to be uh, before uh, President Nazarbayev uh, stepped down. Actually, I think they, the, the book was published around the same time. So, um, where does the term Nazarbayev generation actually come from? Is this something that, that like in Kazakhstan people would recognize? Um, or is this something that you, the editor, or you uh, with, with other researchers actually came up with as, as kind of a, uh, a framework or an analytical tool? The, the research began two years before the, the publication of the book. So at that time, of course, we didn't know what would happen with 
Nazarbayev himself, but in a sense, Nazarbayev president or no more president doesn't change the fact that there is a Nazarbayev generation in the sense that 50% of the population of Kazakhstan was born under Nazarbayev presidency, so over the last 30 years. So that was not the original title of the project. It was just about youth, and it's progressively when we were collecting this research that we kind of collectively saw emerging this notion that there was a Nazarbayev generation in the sense that the the role of Nazarbayev in shaping post-Soviet Kazakhstan has been so important that we can refer to this post-Soviet generation as a Nazarbayev generation, the same way that you can say that in Russia there is also a Putin generation to define all those born in the last uh, two decades. So the term is more an, an academic one than a vernacular one, but at the same time, people in Kazakhstan, I think, would, would understand the term and that would resonate with also their perception that there have been important generational changes these last uh, uh, three decades. Yeah, and briefly, um, what are some of the main uh, attributes that make this generation so unique? And is that something specific to Kazakhstan? Or do we see this as, as some kind of, you know, you've mentioned the comparison to uh, Russia, you know, youth under uh, kind of Putin's uh, tenure. Um, is this something unique to Russia and Kazakhstan? Or do you see this Nazarbayev generation as, as, as part of a more global set of trends? I see them as part of a more global uh, trend. They are not unique, absolutely. In fact, when you look at the main feature of this younger generation in Kazakhstan, they share many features with younger people all over the world. I mean, the same trends for millennials and Generation Z all over in the rest of the world in terms of, you know, their way of consuming things, their relationship to social media, their belief in individualism, individual success, the fact that they are not politicized in a classic way, they don't believe in institutions, so on that, they really share many features of all the millennials and the Generation Z all over the world. What makes them existing as a specific generation in their own countries is because their president stayed in power so long that you can say that it has contributed to create a kind of specific culture that you can study over 20 or 30 years, and that is that emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it's also related to the fact that this, that Kazakhstan became an independent country 30 years ago. And so I kind of want to break down the, the individual sections of the book. So we start by looking at, um, you know, every chapter is focused on Kazakhstani youth. Um, but we we start by looking at uh, issues of kind of national and, and civil identities or different uh, conceptions of national identity. And I was wondering if you could explain, like, uh, what are the main kind of issues or are, are there kind of uh, fractures within um, contemporary Kazakhstani society? And, and how do how do um, this this new generation kind of approach those those maybe difficult topics um, that, you know, there's a lot of scholarship, I think, on the Soviet period on kind of identity and identity formation. But I'm curious how young people. Uh, based on on the research and the volume, like young people are dealing with these different kind of issues, um, and what those those main identity kind of uh, fractures are. So, in the nineties and the two thousand, the the Western scholarship on on national identity in Kazakhstan was really focused on looking at the opposition between the birth of a civic identity called Kazakhstani and the continuation of ethnic identities, like mostly a Kazakh ethnic identities and an ethnic or Slavic um, uh, identities. And it was often presented like a kind of binary choices, like Kazakhstan will have either several ethnic identities competing with each other, or it will be able to build a, a supra-ethnic civic Kazakhstani identity. And I think that what we see now emerging from the surveys we have and the research done globally on Kazakhstan, but specifically on the you see that, of course, all these identity boundaries, they are very blurry, right? People have multiple identities, and we see that very clearly with young people. Young ethnic Kazakhs can be both proud of being ethnic Kazakh and proud of being Kazakhstani, and they don't really see why they should articulate something that would necessarily look like contradictory. 
for them it's the two of the two identities are kind of working together and what was interesting also to look at is that among the young ethnic russians living in kazakhstan you could see also that they can feel both culturally Russian and speaking Russian and at the same time being also very proud of being Kazakhstani and not feeling linked to Russia specifically. So here also we could see that both the ethnic and civic identity can in fact work together and these young ethnic Russians are also getting more and more used to recognize that being a Kazakhstani citizen, even if they are ethnically Russian and Russian speaking, it also means adapting, accepting some Kazakh cultural references. So you can see how these this blurry identities are getting transformed. And I think that was it's one of the important elements of the discussion in the book. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought in um, the question of kind of uh, Kazakhstani Russians, because I, I was curious if you could give us a little bit of information about like what, you know, how big is that population are they are they fo- kind of heavily focused in one area, or are they spread out throughout the country? Um, and, and how that how that might compare to other uh, post Soviet countries, be it in Central Asia or uh, in the Caucasus or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Kazakhstan was the the the, the only post Soviet country that had such an important Russian minority at the moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the independence of the country with more than one third ethnic Russian. And if you were englobing like other Slavic minorities, it was about 40% of the population was uh, ethnically, let's say, or, or Slavic or linked uh, to, to, to the Russian speaking uh, world. Now this number has diminished because many people have emigrated. Now it's about like 20, 22% of the population is ethnically Russian. And if we look at younger generation, this number is continuing to diminish. So we had the data, for example, for uh, um, children, teenagers at school. And in that case, there is only 13% of young uh, school-age teenagers that are ethnically Russian. So you can see how this ethnic minority is, in fact, in a minority in decline for several demographic and, and uh, economic uh, reasons. But what we found interesting is that among these So smaller and smaller Russian ethnic minority, there is this growing feeling that they should adapt to what Kazakhstan is becoming, which means learning Kazakhs, which was something really not obvious for ethnic Russian before. Usually they were not inclined to learn Kazakh. Now we see younger ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan learning Kazakhs and considering it's normal to at least speak a certain level of Kazakh and and feeling more and more integrated into a kind of broader Kazakh cultural identity. Yeah, and, and I think this this is a good time to bring up um, something, maybe uh, another kind of a research agenda you have in editing this volume is um, you talk at length about trying to move beyond a kind of post-Soviet lens, you know, um, looking at the ways in which... Um, well, I don't want to say that the legacy, Soviet legacy is disappearing, but we're kind of moving into a new era where maybe that transition period is not so important or can we're kind of finding that it, it, it doesn't help us explain everything that we're uh, observing in, in Central Asia and certainly in Kazakhstan. I think um, in her chapter, um, is it Diana Kudai Bergenova, like makes this, this point really, really well by looking at uh, Mankurts and Kazakh Russians and Shala Kazakhs and, and trying to see how um, the, the kind of artists that she's looking at are, are moving past a framework that could, that, that is simply post-Soviet. Actually, they're developing something new. Um, but I think this is a bigger theme throughout the, uh, the book. Can you, can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Um, is that kind of a central message of the book um, from your perspective as the editor, or is there something you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's one of the main message of the book is that we are now 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and so continuing speaking about post-Soviet something is is also uh, uh, 
making us missing the point that a world generation has been raised no more in Soviet condition, but in post-Soviet condition, which means that they themselves are in a sense no more post-Soviet because their references is really the 19th or the 2000 and no more the, the Brezhnev or the Perestroika time. So I think it was important to see that now, maybe when we try to understand this younger generation, the real legacy that will be important to understand who they will become as adults, it's no more the Soviet time, but it's Nazarbayev time because they will be, they have been raised during this Nazarbayev time and that will be their main framework of reference. And we see that, for example, very much in the, the different cultural consumption among generations. Usually, so young, older people continue to very much to watch Russian television, or if they are on a more kind of nationalist-oriented uh, world, they would look, they would watch uh, Kazakh producing, Kazakh-speaking. A cultural production. When we look at the cultural consumption of young people, it's totally globalized. They watch Turkish, South Korean, Japanese, Indian, Western production, and the Russian production and the Kazakh production is just one element of everything they are watching. So that's where you see really this kind of globalized trend that in which Kazakhstan has been uh, uh, developing these last 30 years is really influencing the the, the way young people look at the world. And yeah, we have several articles in the several chapters in the book, including the one you mentioned by Diana, that look at how this kind of post-colonial critique is getting raised and transformed in Kazakhstan. And I think that's a key element of the discussion because we have indeed a growing a narrative that criticized Russia and the Soviet Union as being a, a colonial power that destroyed many cultural elements of Kazakhstan. But at the same time, you see a new generation of artists who want to move beyond this too simplistic post-colonial critique and also use that to say something about the regime as it is now and to criticize directly or indirectly what they consider the mistake of the, the Nazarbayev elites. So I think there are really interesting games between memory issues of the Soviet time and what is happening now in trying to transform the country. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up kind of um, the issue of the state because I think, you know, as, as is reflected in the title, um, the state actually is playing a, a huge role in in. in a lot of the ways in which the the kind of national and civic identities are being formed and how um, kind of how youth are, are engaging with with different ideas such as traditionalism modernity um, you know um, I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of uh, speak to that like what does 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 the Nazarbayev state or you know the contemporary Kazakh state like how do they, approach youth do they you know i i know we we have some chapters which focus focus on youth policies but what is their aim are they trying to instill some kind of nationalism um, patriotism um and are these effective and and how do they manage to to do to carry out these kind of uh, projects well the state policy as as always or as often is to remain as inclusive as possible so they try to offer different discourses on identity to different audiences. So what the state is producing is Kazakh is different from what the state would be producing in Russian because they are speaking to different cultural groups each time. So they have been, the authorities have been very cool, good at kind of targeting to micro-audience their narrative to be sure everybody can feel at home and find something from the state narrative that they can uh, accept and integrate. Of course, patriotism is a big uh, thing that the regime is trying to promote, not only patriotism toward the country, but also the indirect link, the indirect uh, aspect is, is loyalty toward the regime. And that's uh, a big element of what the, the, the state and the regimes are trying to do, that to avoid any kind of political opposition to, to frame, to, to develop. And if we look at the state policy toward use on national identity, because it's quite, as I said, inclusive and consensual, 
and it's plural because it depends on the the, so, the group they are targeting and the the language of communication. It's quite in harmony with what the young people themselves are seeing for their own country. But I think there are two elements that the state narrative is missing and will have to address one way or another. The first one is everything related to Islam, which is really becoming an important element of identity for young people, either because they feel they want to display some Muslim identity or because, on the contrary, they are afraid of it and they want to reaffirm a secular identity for their own countries. So you can see how much, for example, on social media, the place of Islam in the public space is really becoming something very important for young people to discuss, while the state narrative remains very uh, cautious and old-fashioned in discussing Islam and trying to remain only on the kind of secularism side, was clearly the society is much more plural toward Islam than what the state narrative is ready to recognize. So I think that will be one of the forthcoming line of divide between uh, this younger generation on which the state will have to take a, a, a better position in, in the years to come. And the second dividing element on which the state doesn't really know how to address is all the kind of regional inequality issue that you have in the countries. It's not only the rural versus urban divided, it's also like the two capitals, Almaty and Astana, I mean, no Sultan now on one side, then the provincial cities on the other side, and then the rural on a kind of third side. And you also have a gap between the north and the center on one side, and then the southern and western region on the other side. And on that also, it's something which is very vivid and and vocally expressed by young people that you don't find in the state narrative about nation building. So they will have to to work on that on one way or another. And so do you think that, I mean, it's really interesting because you're talking about how the state kind of develops messages for different groups. So they must be aware, I mean, these state planners must be aware of these these divides. I'm curious, do you think that these divides have like deeper roots in the, the Soviet period? I'm thinking about the comparison to like Tajikistan, uh, where you have a kind of north, at least, in, you know, you have several divides, but you have that north-south divide um, that totally can be traced back to kind of guess, patronage networks or the, the way that the communist establishment worked in Soviet Tajikistan. Do you think that there's like a similar kind of historical background there that helps explain some of these divides in, in the Kazakh case? Well, there are for sure some historical elements that can explain the divide, but I think that contrary to Tajikistan in particular, these divides became more and more acute in the post-Soviet period because Kazakhstan became so rich so rapidly with all the old money. So all the, 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 the case of Kazakhstan as a successful, uh, uh, economic, as an economically successful state also aggravated all the regional differences. So if now we have such level of tensions between the South and the West being largely poorer than the North and uh, the big capital city, I see it not only as a Soviet legacy, but also as the legacy of, of the way the country has been developing in the 19, not in the 90s, but in the 2000 and the 2010s. And clearly where money was flow, money from energy, from oil, was floating in Kazakhstan in the 2000s, the authorities didn't realize how much it would aggravate the regional inequality. And so they missed the point and now that will take them years to kind of rebalance re- re- this uh, 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 disequilibrium that was created during during the, the time where the money was, was there. And I'm curious, like, um, you know, this is a personal curiosity here. Like, how, how do um, people who are young people who grew up during this period of kind of massive or the creation of like massive wealth inequalities in the country, like, did that shape their attitudes in favor of kind of market reform? Um, are, what are their attitudes? To, are, are their attitudes towards corruption like more antagonistic than their their parents or grandparents' generation, or is it actually the opposite? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And we have several articles, several chapters in the volume discussing that. And I think that's one of the main findings that is especially interesting for the academic community, but also for the policy community in this country, is that young people are clearly dissociated from older generation in their relationship to market economy. They believe in market economy. They believe in individual success. They believe in money as a symbol of, of uh, success. But that doesn't make them politically more active. That doesn't make them believing in democratic values, in liberalism. That doesn't make them being more pro-Western in terms of foreign policy. So that's a big gap between believing in market economy and not necessarily believing in democratic value that usually in the West we think they are associated, but in fact they are, they are not. And so when we look at some of the statistical data we have, we see that young people are in fact accommodating quite well with the patronal and authoritarian nature of the regime as long as they feel that the economic success for them individually uh, can be there. At the same time, I say that, and that doesn't mean, of course, that because this younger generation are not very much politically active, that doesn't mean that they won't become politically more active when they will be getting older. It also doesn't mean that you don't have some small groups that are not engaged politically. I mean, we saw since Nazarbayev's resignation how many protests were organized in Kazakhstan, mostly by young people. So you have the activation of a small minority of young, urban, middle-class people who try to, who wants to fight against corruption, who want change in the political system, but they are quite limited so far. They don't have a big reach. And it seems that for the majority of the population of this younger generation, the main issues is really individual success more than broader or more abstract political values. Yeah, and I think I think we've kind of shifted into the uh, second section of the book, which is on kind of youth voices and and kind of moral changes. Um, how this new generation is is kind of responding to the changes of the post-Soviet period, and and how this affects their kind of questions on morality. And one point that um, I think a couple of the authors uh, in in the volume brought up was. Um, Kind of the question of um, those students, those Kazakh students, Kazakhstani students who have studied abroad or spent time at uh, the prestigious Nazarbayev University um, in in the capital, um, and and how maybe do you think that these this group of students, whether they they spend time at the university or uh, study abroad, work abroad, spend spend time. Um, in, in, in different countries, do you think that this separates them um, from the majority of their peers on kind of questions of morality, um, or do they share something in common with the, the bigger generation? Does your research reflect any, or does the research of the volume reflect that at all? Yeah, I think they, they both share a lot with the, the their peers who didn't uh, who weren't able to go abroad or to study in prestigious institutions like Nazarbayev University. And at the same time, they have some specific feature. But I'm not sure we can really say that the feature they have would be to be like more open to democratic value or more liberal. They may be more critical because they have seen something different for those who were abroad. But we don't really have you know, enough statistical data that would allow us to generalize. So what we have is a kind of a, a large series of individual cases where you, may, you can notice that when someone goes abroad for studying, this person can come back either deeply transformed in terms of value, sometimes not transform at all, and on the contrary, reinforcing their own national identity against Western values. You can see people who understand better cultural differences, but they don't want to change their practices. You can see people who have kind of dual identity, right? When they are abroad, they are more adapted to kind of Western style values. When they are back at home, they can be more traditional and they play on both uh, sides of this identity. So it's, I think it's difficult to generalize. And for those who didn't live abroad, but who studied in this kind of Western-oriented Higher, institu higher education institution like Nazarbayev 
universities. I think for them, it's even more difficult to say if something is changing. Of course, they are studying in other very specific conditions, but they remain very much influenced by the general Kazakhstani environment culturally and in terms of values. So they may have some more polarized discussion on the kind of value they want, but I think on the in the majority of cases, at least statistically, they, they not necessarily represent what we could imagine as a being a kind of liberal or, or Western-oriented minority. And how does, I guess this goes for both um, those, those, um, those who are traveling abroad or, or those who kind of grow up and stay in the country. Do you think that this generation, you've mentioned kind of their attitudes towards um, political issues, but what about kind of social issues? Are there attitudes towards kind of a national identity or traditional gender roles, or the role of the family in society, are those things changing, or do we see more of a continuity with the generations uh, before them? Well, what seems to be sure is that for the younger generation, going abroad or staying at home, everything related to gender, values, more the meaning of family, has been very much retraditionalized this last let's say, two decades. It's really crucial, crucial, critical issue that are very much discussed, for example, in social media. It's all about, you know, what it means to be a real Kazakh, what it means to rediscover national tradition, what can be the role of women, what can be the definition of family, should there be any kind of cultural reference to Islam made more openly or officially or not. And that, I think, is a general feature we have all over Kazakhstan for, the young, for young people. But in fact, if you look all over the, the world, it's also something that is not specific to Kazakhstan, right? You, you have a, an emphasis put on values in all our societies. We have all this discussion also in the West about gay and LGBT rights, and it's also a big element of the discussion in Kazakhstan. So I see that as something broader. It's a feature of the globali- of globalization to have this discussion on, on values and how to define families and gender. But clearly in Kazakhstan, it's becoming a very se- sensitive topic for the younger generation. And he also, I think those who have been abroad or those who have been educated in Western-style institutions, they may be more polarized on the way they can express their opinion, but I'm not sure that statistically we can really say that they constitute a kind of liberal style minority. I think they are much more representative of the general atmosphere, which is to be more and more conservative in terms of uh, value and, and gender identity, even if that's also where you would find, if there is still a, a kind of liberal minority among these young people, you will find it mostly in this institution but they are not statistically representative enough, I think. Yeah, um, and I find that interesting because I, I, uh, I took particular interest in uh, Karligash Kabatova's chapter. So she had a chapter there on kind of Kazakhstani youth and um, kind of sexual education, um, reproductive literacy. And she found that, you know, by looking at anonymous surveys, um, that actually there there is a increased interest in in... Um, developing kind of sex education in Kazakhstan, um, even if this is a really taboo topic and um, maybe in, in kind of a public setting, uh, these results wouldn't have been shown. But in those anonymous surveys, um, there does seem to be a, a kind of shift in attitude. And I was curious, like, is there any kind of official government response to this? Or do you think that um, because of the taboo nature of, of these kind of conversations, it'll be some time before uh, we see any kind of like real change in, in that regard. Yeah, unfortunately, the state response on this issue is a quite conservative one. As you said, it's still a taboo topic. So you have both a kind of bureaucratic inertia reproducing Soviet tradition of not trying to talk about that. So you don't have, you know, bureaucrats or nurses or doctors are not really trained to discuss this issue, you don't have a tradition of having kind of family therapists who can be here to help young people or families globally discussing these issues. And then you have this revival of kind of conservative values where you will have more and more 
kind of ideological groups and entrepreneurs who will push this institution to be very conservative, to try to limit abortion, to try not to explain uh, anything related to sex education at school. So in fact, you see it's it's even going uh, 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 more in a more conservative way on many aspects that it was during during Soviet time. And of course, here also the the regional or the language divide is a very important. If you are in rural region in Kazakhstan, it's much more difficult to get this information than if you live in an in an urban environment. And if you read things in Kazakhs on the Kazakh internet, you will find much less than if you can read them in Russian. So here also you have a gap both between uh, regions and between access to languages to to try to to access this kind of sensitive information. And do you have any idea of how this might compare to um, some of the other post-Soviet countries, be it Russia, Uzbekistan, um, Georgia? Is this is this a common phenomenon, or is there something unique about Kazakhstan in that regard? No, I wouldn't say it's unique. I would say it's more general to the to the whole post-Soviet region. But you have important national differences. For example, Kyrgyzstan is more liberal on these issues. Not only not because the the state the Kyrgyz state is particularly more liberal, but just because it was more open to NGO to Western influence, and so you had more active civil societies uh, trying to develop try the the kind of family planning tradition or having more initiative coming from the civil society to try to develop this sex education aspect. Uzbekistan is still very close on that issue, so I think it's even worse than in Kazakhstan. And in Russia, it's very different depending who you are and where you are, right? If you are a young uh, Russian living in Moscow, you will find absolutely all the information you may need to know about sex education. If you are living in a remote region or if you belong to a minority, I don't know, in the Caucasus, for example, you will still find yourself, on the contrary, on a much more conservative framework. So Russia on that is much more diverse. I want to move a little bit towards the, the third section of the book, um, which focuses on what seems to me a really important kind of aspect of the post-Soviet experience is globalization, and you call it globalization and, and cultural blending. And I was curious, um, one thing I noticed is that there was not as much information as I expected about China in the book, and I was curious, like, um, how, how, how we can look at kind of China's uh, role in, in contemporary Kazakhstan politics and culture and kind of what is the nature of, of China's presence in Kazakhstan, especially as, as Kazakhstan is one of those uh, kind of one of the bigger um, exporting countries of Central Asia? Do they have more leverage in relation to China or? Um, yeah, feel free to, to add in, but I was just curious about that. Yeah, there is not so much about China in the book because China is an important economic player in Kazakhstan. But at the cultural, societal level, China is still a very small player in Kazakhstan compared to other external power or to the changes happening in the country itself. So what we noticed about China that is really important is that the number of Kazakhstani students going to China is really important. I think for the last academic year, it was like 13,000 Kazakhstani students studying in China, and then they can be on Chinese state fellowship, on fellowship from private firm, from the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, from local universities, or they come on their own money. So probably the number is even higher if we would count all those who go to China on their own money. But what is interesting... Sorry, how does that compare to um, Europe or other countries in Asia or in, in the United States and Canada? Um, are those numbers comparable, or do we have more going to China, more going elsewhere? I know, so, so like two thirds of Kazakhstani students going abroad are going to Russia. Oh, yeah, it's like seventy thousand yeah. going to Russia. So it's Russia really uh, receiving the majority of Kazakhstani mm-hmm. students. Then it's Europe and the US as a big kind of Western bloc, and then it's China and several other smaller destinations like Japan, some Muslim countries, and so on. So even on that number, China is not so uh, successful. 
And even when we look after on those going to China to study Chinese, we can see that they not necessarily come back more pro-Chinese, right? Going to China doesn't mean you will become someone with a pro-Chinese orientation. We see the same trend among the people, the young people who are studying Chinese while staying in Kazakhstan, so mostly through the Confucius Institutes. Usually they are interested in learning the language because they know it's a way to uh, integrate some uh, good businesses in the private sector, but they are not attracted by Chinese culture globally. So what one of the, the, the conclusion of the book that we had on this kind of cultural aspect is that so far toward the younger generation, but also more globally toward Kazakhstani population, China didn't really succeed in developing any kind of cultural soft power. If we compare with other Asian countries, it really failed. So young people are much more attracted by South Korean and Japanese culture than they are toward Chinese culture. I found that really interesting. You had you had a couple chapters in there about kind of uh, Japanese media and even um, uh, South. Was it? I forget. If it was, I think it was South Korean pop music, kind of influencing and even giving rise to um, Kazakh Kazakh pop, which kind of mirrored J-pop or, or K-pop. Um, I found that really interesting um, because it seemed actually that in that way, uh, this was having a bigger impact than maybe European culture or, as you mentioned, uh, Chinese culture. Um, Is this happening mostly through the Internet or do you think that young Kazakhs are going to South Korea and Japan and bringing this back? I'm just that that came as a total surprise to me. and I think it might for many of the readers as well. Yeah, it's both. So it's going through both uh, um, music and movies, miniseries production, and also, you know, everything related to other form of young cultural fashion. It can be clothes, you know, it can be manga, comics, whatever. So, so there is really a big cultural soft power coming from South Korea and, Ch- and uh, Japan that usually we don't see in the West because our uh, usually our research done on soft power is very Western-centric, <laughs> right? We try to look if, if young people from the post-Soviet space are moving away from Russian influence toward Western influence or maybe toward uh, uh, Middle Eastern influence for Muslim countries, but we forget to look at what is happening toward Asia. And I think that's one of the big elements. It's how all these different cultural production, it's also links to social media, you know, to the fact that, I don't know, you buy a, a Samsung, a Samsung, uh, 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 <laughs> Samsung's object, uh, that you have all these kind of technological production coming from South Korea and Japan that are considered as very trendy for young people, but it's mostly music and uh, miniseries and kind of manga culture that are really growing. And I also found that fascinating to see that emerging so so rapidly, especially in Kazakhstan. We have it in the other Central Asian countries, but not at the same pace. I think Kazakhstan on that is very much uh, more advanced than the other uh, Central Asia country. We also see uh, attraction at a smaller level for the kind of Malaysia, Singapore model. So that's also interesting to see that globally Asia is very attractive, but that doesn't mean it's China. On the contrary, it's other non, non-Chinese Asia. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's kind of a good reminder um, for you know researchers uh, to kind of keep these things in mind and not so, you know, not just like, kind of paint things in pictures of, well, either the West or Russia, but actually understand that there are multiple influences um, at play here. And, and that, that was kind of a good reminder that I pulled from that section. Um, and one that, as I mentioned, it caught me completely by surprise. Um, and so um, with we have a little bit of time left. So I wanted to talk about the last section, which is on uh, youth youth activism in Kazakhstan. And so we have, for instance, um, well, I think when the book was was published, maybe a, a less than optimistic um, kind of uh, view on, on on youth activism and activism in general in Kazakhstan. And so, for instance, we have uh, Kasnazarov's chapter where he's talking about political discourse online, um, but we don't really get the impression that that 
young Kazakh students or you know Kazakh youth are are really active in in kind of more concrete political movements. But I'm wondering if you know the, the protests that we saw after uh, Nazarbayev stepped down. Does that change how we look at this? Do you have any sense for? Um, what that participation looked like? Was there a lot of young people involved in those protests? Or Yes, yeah, so the protests were really not only, but mostly activated by young people. Not only, there was also like more adults, uh, older generation, there were also retired uh, people, but it was mostly a, a youth movement. So it really showed that suddenly something crystallized among some of these minority uh, uh, young groups that wanted to be active politically, that suddenly some public space opened for them to demonstrate their will of being more active. At the same time, I think we should remain very realistic. It's They are not popular. Their, their, their resonance in the society is a very limited one. So, and, and a large part of the young people are not especially interested in joining this kind of movement. So it's more the activation of a small liberal minority or a minority that would be more nationalist oriented that also wants political changes, but not necessarily with the liberal uh, Western style uh, coloration. And then all the different movements that emerge during the protest, they are still divided. They have several, as I said, competing agendas and strategy. They don't know if they want to confront the authorities or try to work with the authorities in improving things. So it's still a very fragmented movement, which in a sense is probably normal. But if you compare it, for example, with the rise of youth activism in Russia, which is much more developed and much more structured now, you can see that in Kazakhstan, it's still very, very limited so far. At the same time, it's good it's there now because they have been able to gain some visibility thanks to the protest. The governments knows they are there and they will have to deal with them. They are better organized on social media. They have some visibility abroad. So, so all that are, are good trends, but it still doesn't change the big picture, which is that the majority of young people are not very much involved in any kind of big political mobilization uh, mechanism. Well, I'm just wondering what are their, I guess... It seems to me, based on that chapter especially, um, which looked at kind of like online activism or um, discussions online, um, that there is a lot of discontent um, about the political situation. There's kind of a lack of respect of authorities. There's a frustration with corruption. Um, Are these – so I guess knowing that, what are the main – um, kind of agendas or goals that that people were mobilizing around um, after after uh, Nazarbayev stepped down and they renamed the capital. Was it just in response to that, or is there something? Are there like bigger issues at play that people are um, kind of using the moment to to kind of voice their concern? So there are bigger issues. So corruption is one, but it's it's even more than corruption. It's this impression that. Elites and authorities are all, all level, like central authorities, regional and municipal authorities are not taking care of public opinion, that they take decisions without any kind of accountability or inclusion mechanism. So it's a call for more inclusion in participating in decision-making process. So that's one aspect, fight against corruption. Also, everything related to ecological concerns is rising and it's becoming also in some cities an important element where people can get activated around everything related to environment. Um, You have everything, all this rise of urban activism, so everything related on how the city should function. You know, it can be both about traffic jams, you know, creation of new parking lot or all these kind of of everyday life, of management of uh, the urban space is really becoming something very important on the agenda, especially of the young people and of this urban middle classes where they feel they want to say something. So it's not about kind of political abstract rights of voting and, you know, plural pluralism of political parties. It's really being able to find a way to keep the local authorities accountable for what they are doing in terms of managing the everyday life of their own citizen. 
So I think that's a very good first step because it's a very grassroots aspect of politics on which these young people are now getting more and more kind of active. Yeah, and it's focused on something much more concrete, not 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 kind of these bigger, more abstract ideas. But exactly, that's something where you can hope to speak to a broader constituencies and help explaining people how much it matters in their everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Marlene, I think um, we're nearing the end of our interview here, but as is custom, I wanted to kind of give you a chance to, to talk about maybe some upcoming projects. I know this is a book series, so maybe you have new books coming out, or if there's anything you're working on personally, um, we'd love to hear about it. Well, the, the book series itself here yeah, is developing. We will have new books coming on, on Kazakh cinema, for example, we will have also new research done on the what is happening in Uzbekistan economically, especially because the country is changing a lot and very fast. Right, right. And of course, after this book on Nazarbayev generation, I was really excited by the topic. And hopefully, I hope there will be new groups of scholars who will be trying to do the same kind of research on youth in Kyrgyzstan and youth in Uzbekistan. It would be really great to have a comparison for each of the country about the, this younger generation and how they are transforming their own country. So I hope this was just the first and there will be a kind of following up research agenda that will be growing progressively around these, these questions. Great. Yeah, we look forward to all of that. And um, once again, uh, if you want to find more uh, or if you liked what you heard in the interview and you want to read more, you can look for uh, The Nazarbayev Generation, Youth in Kazakhstan, edited by Dr. Marlene Laruel, and that was published by Lexington Books in 2019. Uh, Marlene, thanks again for having, uh, for coming on the show and, and, and sharing your knowledge. Uh, we, we really uh, enjoyed having you, and we hope that you'll come back and, and share more uh, as the book series continues. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.